You are listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans as they examine America's most infamous true crime cases as they were established in our courts and the basis for the decisions of the appeals courts not the court of public opinion. Here's Lisa and Kyle. Welcome to season two of Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Lisa O'Brien, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kyle Evans. This is episode five, State of North Carolina versus Molly Martins-Corbett, and Thomas Michael Martins. Martins, a former FBI agent, and his daughter Molly are awaiting retrial for murder in North Carolina. In the early morning hours of August 2nd, 2015, Molly's husband, Jason Corbett, was beaten to death with a paver wielded by his wife, Molly, and a bat wielded by his father-in-law, Martins. Their self-defense claims were quickly rejected by investigators who presented the case to a grand jury, which indicted the pair for second-degree murder and voluntary manslaughter. We'll talk about the evidence against Corbett and Martins, their initial trial and state appellate claims, and the appellate decisions that granted their new trial request. We'll also talk about the information currently available regarding their retrial. And good afternoon, Kyle. Good afternoon, Lisa. How are you? Very well. Uh, Of course, there's another note that I want to make very quickly today. Uh, it is 27 years since the death of Stacy Stites in uh, Bastrop, Texas. That's a case that we followed. And uh, the Rodney Reed case was recently back in the news. Uh, we'll be talking about that in two weeks. And we'll also talk about another case in the news, which is Richard Glossop. And we'll look at the update on that case in two weeks. But today we're talking about the. Uh, case against Molly Martins Corbett and her father, Thomas Michael Martins. And all right, let's get started. Sorry. <laughs> Having a little, a little senior moment there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So of course we start off with the victim. Uh, we'll talk about him first. Jason Paul Corbett was born on February 12th, 1976. Uh, in Limerick, which I believe is a county in the Republic of Ireland. he uh, His parents are John Corbett and Rita O'Donoghue Corbett. Uh, she passed away on May 17, 2020. He came from a large family. His siblings are John, Michael, Stephen, Christopher, Marilyn, Tracy, and Wayne. And Jason and Wayne were twins. He was an executive and plant or and or plant manager for a package uh, manufacturer in Ireland, in England. And also that company had a company, uh, a, a location in North Carolina. Um, I'm not going to say the company's name on the air um, because it's I don't want to risk stirring up any conspiracy theories or 
or other things uh, because it's not really relevant to the uh, the case. But it, he was employed by this company for a long time and had done very well with the company. Uh, he was a valued member of their of their team. He was yeah. married. Oh, go yeah, ahead. You, no, it just, I mean, you, especially to get an international assignment, it definitely probably speaks that he was very well thought of. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk a little bit more about how that came about, which to me says even more. Um, Jason was married twice, first to Margaret Mags Fitzpatrick. Uh, she was born on May 8th, 1975. And forgive me if I get any of the dates backwards because uh the irish dates are day month and i may get confused sometimes um but i believe she was born may 8 1975 jason and mags were married on june 28 2003 uh unfortunately mags passed away after a severe asthma attack on november 21st 2006 um, at the time, Mags had just given birth to their uh, daughter, Sarah, who was born September 2nd, 2006. Jason and Mags also had a son, Jack Michael Corbett, who was born September 18th, 2004. So he was um, just past his two-year-old, two-year birthday. Um, Jason's character uh, from descriptions of his from his family, he was gregarious, he was extroverted, he was loving, he was a romantic, he was devoted, and he was gentle. Um, and his injuries in this case were blunt force trauma to his head. The perpetrators in the case are Molly Page Martins Corbett. She was born September 28, 1983, I believe in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, it's not really clear and not really that important. Her parents are Thomas Michael Martins and Sharon Ernest Martins. She has three brothers, Robert, Stewart, and Connor. She uh, attended Clemson University but dropped out very early. She was engaged in around 2006 to a gentleman by the name of Keith McGinn. They lived together in, an, a, in a condo or apartment in Knoxville owned by her parents. Uh, and McGinn supported her for almost the entire length of their relationship because of her in, emotional issues that led to her being unable to hold a job. Uh, and then she married Jason Paul Corbett on June 4th, 2011. And I didn't talk about his marriage to Molly when I was talking about Jason, and that was just an oversight. Uh, they had no children. Molly never had children. Uh, Molly's emotional and mental and character are kind of a mixed bag, and none of them are good. She was uh, did have a longstanding diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Was that known um, at the time? I mean, was that a sort of known at the time or is that something that sort of come to light later? No, it was known at the time because she disclosed it to Keith McGinn. Got him. And she was on bipolar medications. Um, the problem 
with many people with bipolar medications, a lot of the times they take the medications, they start feeling so good, they don't think they need the medication anymore. And so they stop taking it. Right. Yep. And then they go into a downward spiral. Uh, and then they, you know, it's something with bipolar, you have to take it. You, you're going to have to take it because your brain chemistry is out of whack. And the only way to keep the brain chemistry in whack is your medication. Yeah, it's really nothing, nothing you're ever going to really get over. And that you're feeling good is shows you the medication is working. Don't stop taking it. Um, but right. that's something. But I would expect somebody with a longstanding diagnosis like Molly has to have some insight into the disease and to be able to understand how important keeping consistently, you know, consistently keeping with your medication is vital. Right. Um, and there are bipolar who can't afford medication. Yeah. Who, and that's what I was thinking. She's relatively sophisticated, comes from a good family. She doesn't really have any excuses not to take her meds. Exactly. And she's also a manipulative person. Um, she was observed to abuse her stepson, Jack. She was observed to abuse Jason uh, emotionally, um, at least verbally abuse him. Uh, she was also observed to occasionally be abusive to her stepdaughter, Sarah. She had a history of lying about her life, her family, her background. Um, and when she was caught in a lie, she would either gaslight the person calling her out by denying that she told the lie or she would play the victim. And you know, like when confronted about lying about her family and her background or her education, she would say, well, I was always ashamed of myself or I didn't have self-esteem or, you know, it's like, no, you just, you're a liar. Um, and of course the victim in this case is Jason Paul Corbett. The next perpetrator is Thomas Michael Martins. This is a father daughter killing team. Uh, Thomas was born January 20th, 1950 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was, he did attend Emory University. He did apparently have JD. He worked with the, he was a, an agent at the Federal Bureau of Investigation for 30 years. He was a supervisor for 19 years. He apparently aged out of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. When you reach, reach a certain age, you have to right. retire. Uh, but he went from the, the Bureau to the Department of Energy, and he was stationed at Oak Ridge Laboratory in Tennessee, and he was in counterintelligence, I guess, to ensure uh, no terrorist activity could affect U.S. or at least Oak Ridge labs. All right. It's got to be a pretty good gig. You can retire and get your full federal pension from the FBI and then just go to another federal and, and, job, and you, double and dip. It it seems like, you know, he would have been making a lot of money. I mean, he probably was making a lot of money for the FBI. He then would have had a, an FBI pension and he would yeah. probably be making a lot of money for the Department of Energy. Um, but yeah, absolutely. That doesn't quite fit because we'll talk about that a little later 
anyway, he was married to Sharon Ernest, who apparently was some kind of math professor at a university, uh, probably in Knoxville, but not UT. And their children were our Molly, our Robert, Molly, Stewart, and Connor. Uh, Thomas's character is also, um, I, I was speaking to people at work and I described this family, the Martins family, as the Adams family without the charm. Because they're creepy and they're kooky and mysterious and ooky. Um, <laughs> you have to be a certain age to understand that. I know. I was like, I was, I was processing the analogy, and then also I, just really impressed with your ability to remember this, all the details of the song. Um, because I don't think even Wednesday on Netflix <laughs> went there. <laughs> anyway, uh, Thomas has a high opinion of himself, a superiority complex. He's dishonest as well, given his actions in this case and and some of his statements in this case. Uh, I'm going to brand him Lia Lia. And um, another thing that's kind of troubling is that he chose a Confederate landmark for Molly's wedding in Knoxville, Tennessee. That is run by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. It was at that time to this day, it is still run by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. So. I don't know. I don't understand why a guy born in Philly is attached to the Confederacy in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, it's just. I mean, all of these are terrible. But I mean, again, as we have talked about, I mean, it's it's just especially disturbing when you have somebody that was in the FBI, yeah, for his entire career, and then a security and consultant could just do this. It makes and it. And then also, he took money from Jason. Um, he took money uh, from Jason when they first moved to the United States. He took money from Jason to help pay for Molly's wedding, even though the bride's family is supposed to. There are certain things that the, the groom's family should pay for. But, I mean, at Molly's age, they should have been glad somebody wanted to marry her. And right, they're exactly. rich. They should have wanted to pay for the whole freaking thing. It shouldn't have required anything for Jason that they arranged. Well, yeah, I guess there was no evidence of anything else going on with him. I mean, any gambling or something. I mean, like we said, he's probably doing pretty well. May not be a multimillionaire, but he's probably doing pretty pretty darn well. Is, was there any evidence of no, any but accusations? Maybe again, he's just greedy. You know, the family is. Um, is really probably going to hide and the other members of the family if if thomas is a is a in, is a gambler they're not going to talk about it right they're not going to make him look bad no for sure um now molly uh has never met a dollar she didn't like to spend and she's never been able to support herself so somebody's always had to support her so maybe um, maybe Thomas and Sharon are supporting right. all of their adult children. Yeah, because that's the thing people forget, right? It's never it's always about the income, not the revenue. You know, you can make all the money in the world, but if you spend more than you make, no matter how much you make, you'll still be poor. Yeah, yeah. So um, 
yeah, that's another mystery is I, I don't understand why they would need a penny. They live in a lavish house. They have country club memberships. Uh, she works at a, you know, in a prestigious job. He works in a prestigious job. They should not be needing money from their son-in-law, especially a son-in-law they look down on like they're better than he is. Right. So, all right. So the, the crime, uh, of course, it happened on August 2nd, 2015. Jason Paul Corbett is the victim. The location was 160 Panther Creek Court, which is located in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. That is in Davidson County. Um, and Winston-Salem is, while it's the seat of Forsyth County, um, Davidson County Sheriff responded to the 911 call. Davidson County, Davidson County Emergency Services responded on the night of the call. The child custody pleadings were all filed in Davidson County. And the criminal charges were charged and prosecuted in Davidson County. So likely this is one of those places that uh, the way the county lines are drawn, you could have two houses within half a block of one another and one's in one county and one's in right. another. And there are parishes like that in Louisiana where I you know, filed something and the, the clerk of court told me that service was going to be done by uh, Caddo Parish Sheriff. Or no, by Cameron Parish Sheriff. And it turned out the, the place was actually in Calcasieu Parish. But it had, the clerk thought it was in Cameron. Or vice versa. So I ended up having to get service arranged on the fly. Because the clerk sent my stuff to the wrong parish and it was only when the sheriff got it the sheriff said wait a second this is not in my jurisdiction i can't serve this so that's one of those places and you see a lot of those especially in rural counties yeah. um and jason's uh and work the plant where he worked was in lexington i believe which is in davidson county as well so, you know, that's that's the situation. Um, so it's kind of interesting later on. But um, that is I, I've I listened to a couple of podcasts that said they were in Forsyth County when they really weren't. They were in Davidson County. No doubt about it. Um, Jason God. was an Irish national who married his childhood sweetheart and the love of his life, Margaret Max Fitzpatrick, on June, uh, June 28, 2003. On November 21st, 2006, 12 weeks after the birth of their daughter, Sarah, Mags, who had a history of asthma, suffered a severe attack that night. An ambulance was called, and Mags, Jason and Mags' visiting sister did everything they could to help her. When the ambulance didn't arrive quickly enough, Jason put Mags in the car to meet the ambulance. Mags lost consciousness in the car just as they met the ambulance, and she passed away en route to the hospital. After Mags's death, Jason had the help of his family and hers, but not wanting to rely heavily on siblings and grandparents who had their own lives, and in an effort to give Jack and Sarah a more normal life and establish a routine for them, 
Jason sought out an au pair to care for the children and help around the house. His initial hires didn't work out because of a language barrier, as English was not their first language. In 2007, he went back to the drawing board and placed an ad specifying that his family wanted only an English, only English-speaking candidates to apply. Molly Page Martins, a college dropout from Knoxville, Tennessee, answered the ad. At the time, Molly was living with fiancé Keith McGinn in Knoxville. She'd just spent time in an Atlanta mental facility and had an admitted history of bipolar disorder. Unknown to Keith, Molly was obviously looking for a way out of her relationship. Jason, fooled by Molly's phony credentials, hired her, and in March 2008, she arrived in Ireland. She told Keith she'd be back in weeks and then bought a one-way ticket. Weeks later, she told Keith she wasn't coming back. Molly had a history of lying about herself, her background, her qualifications, and her family. For example, she told the college roommate that her sister Grace died of cancer and showed the roommate a stock photo of a pretty blonde child. When the roommate discovered that the photo was a 5x7 stock photo that comes with the frame, she confronted Molly, who denied ever saying the girl in the picture was her sister. Molly lied to Jason about earning a degree from Clemson, although she dropped out. She lied about prior nanny work, provided falsified references. In reality, Molly's mental condition had prevented her from holding a job during most of her relationship with Keith in Knoxville over the last year or so. Initially, Molly was good with Jack and Sarah. She was also good with Jason, and as it had with Keith, their relationship progressed quickly. Molly had to leave Ireland due to immigration problems, likely due to her arrival in the country on a one-way ticket. <laughs> Jason wanted boundaries when she returned, but Molly never got her own place to live or a job to support herself when she got back to Ireland. Soon, Molly began complaining that she was homesick. She complained that she was living in Mags's shadow and in Mags's house. So Molly began campaigning for a move to the U.S., Jason's company had a plant in North Carolina, and to please Molly, he approached the company, which agreed to transfer him there. And that's where it really says a lot about Jason. And it also contradicts and refutes Molly's later allegations about him being controlling and possessive. Because a controlling, possessive man does not care. An abusive man does not care if you're not happy. Right. Well, sorry, just to clarify something that maybe you touched on. So they've, it feels like, did they, are they sort of uh, dating at this point? Yes, or a, they began okay, dating. So it and, went really, and she was not a, she was not the au pair only for very long, I guess. No. And I think it was probably very quickly. And I, I, I have no doubt in my mind that Molly is like Jody Arias. She's like Dahlia DiPolito. She's like that song Blank Space by Taylor uh, by Taylor Swift. She'll find out who you want her yeah. to be. And she'll be that person for a month. Right. And once she sucks you in, then she starts making her demands and she starts trying to take over your life. Yeah, it, she escalated very quickly from au pair to wanting her wanting the yeah. family to move to the United States. Correct. Correct. 
And so she began this campaign. Jason, uh, like I said, if Jason was abusive, if he was controlling, he would not give a crap in the world if Molly was unhappy. Correct. Yeah. And he certainly wouldn't have uprooted his life and his family's life if he was abusive and controlling. Yeah. I mean, he, he was he, he was leaving everything. He was leaving his family. He was leaving Mags's family because they were still close. Yep. They were still in Jack and Sarah's lives. Exactly. And he was moving to the United States. Uh, but again, proving how much people loved him, his Irish family made a point of visiting him regularly in the United States. So they didn't lose touch. Uh, anyway, Jason's family had noticed that he smiled more and seemed happy with Molly in his life. Molly's lies and inconsistencies gave them pause, though. On Valentine's Day 2010, Jason proposed to Molly, who, upset, who accepted. The couple, Jack and Sarah, moved to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where Jason, using the proceeds from the sale of his house in Limerick, paid cash for a spacious home picked out by Molly. In April 2011, he transferred $80,000 to Molly to furnish the house. He also transferred transferred $50,000 to her parents, although the reasons were never specified. The Martins had a lavish It's really lifestyle. strange. It's like Mart- almost like a dowry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost, like a reverse yeah. dowry. He bought her Yeah. a reverse um, dowry. The Martins had a lavish lifestyle, large home, country club, high-end cars, etc., so why they would need 50000 from Jason is a mystery. On June 4th, 2011, Jason and Molly were married in a lavish wedding at Bleak House, the Confederate Memorial Hall in Knoxville, Tennessee, run by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. In spite of their outward appearance of great wealth, the Martins demanded that Jason pay $50,000 toward the cost of the wedding. Uh, and it may have been things that the, the groom is supposed to pay for, I'm not sure. Uh, but still it just it just strikes me as gauche. No, exactly. To have this, you know, lavish lifestyle of their own and to demand it because it doesn't sound like it was a it was a request. Well, and especially, I mean, they weren't, you know, they weren't longtime sweethearts, very close family, you know, it was mm-hmm. his second marriage. Not that he did you know, it goes her fur, but still. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're a little bit older. They're not, you know, 27, been together for, you know, six years, you know, and this is the big, you know, social event of the season. Yeah, it's just she very was, strange. Yeah, she was 28. Yeah. So, and again, I'm going to say it at 28 years old, no job, no education, bipolar disorder, has been in a mental hospital Um, in Atlanta, not Knoxville, but in Atlanta. Which suggests to me that they wanted to hide that fact. Um, I'm going to say, if somebody's marrying your daughter, you want a lavish wedding, you pay 100% of it. Exactly. Yeah, they should have just been happy. Maybe that they could transfer the expense to poor Jason instead of them Mm -hmm. having to pay for her life. Uh, Jason's family and friends weren't in favor of the marriage. They learned that Molly had lied about her connection to Jason and Mags prior to Mags' death, telling people that she was a pen pal of Mags. And had even led people to believe that she was Sarah's birth mother. They also observed Molly's erratic behavior and abuse toward Jack on multiple occasions. 
Molly also made ugly and disparaging comments about Jason. Wedded Bliss also didn't last long. Molly claimed that Jason promised to allow her to, to adopt Jack and Sarah once they were married. Had he made that agreement, Molly's erratic behavior would have discouraged him from following through. Jason also didn't know about Molly's long-standing bipolar disorder, which was worsened by her failure to consistently take her med medications. Jason's family also observed Molly's drinking and suspected she was abusing drugs. Given Molly's penchant for dishonesty, it's equally probable that Jason didn't want Molly to replace Mags as the children's mother. Determined to get her way, within weeks of the wedding, Molly consulted a lawyer who advised her that she had no recourse unless she could prove Jason was abusive. Molly stashed recorders in Jason's car and around the house to record disputes between, between herself and Jason. She baited Jason in front of his children to record their distress. Molly made demands for money and made disparaging comments about Jason to their neighbors. She was also jealous because the neighbors liked Jason and didn't like her. While Molly did have a part-time job and a credit card in her name, bank records have demonstrated that her credit card bill was paid with money transferred to her by Jason. Molly also spent lavishly and complained that Jason was controlling. In fact, Jason was concerned about Molly's spending and was trying to curb her spending to ensure that she wouldn't bankrupt the family. By 2015, the marriage was broken. In August, a homesick Jason began making plans to permanently return to Ireland with Jack and Sarah. According to co-workers, friends, and family, Jason's planned departure date was August 21st, 2015. Jason had transferred money to his bank in Ireland and began making arrangements with his employer and researching flights. He didn't include Molly in those plans. Co-workers reported that Jason intended to leave Jack and Sarah in Limerick with his family while he returned to North Carolina to sort out his marriage to Molly. On August 1st, 2015, Molly, Jason, and the kids attended a neighborhood barbecue. Molly made a nasty comment about Jason's weight that led him to leave the party early. That comment may have been the last straw for Jason, who likely disclosed his plans to leave Molly. At around 8.30 p.m., Martins and Sharon Martins arrived for an unscheduled visit. Phone records suggest this could have been in response to a call from Molly. Martins brought an aluminum Louisville slugger bat, allegedly for Jack, and a tennis racket, allegedly for Sarah. So and not to, just a quick general question mm -hmm. or comment. It's fascinating, not a psychologist. Do you think she ever intended for this to work out? I mean, do you think she, I mean, I just don't understand. It's, I can't wrap my head around you know, somebody like this. I mean, I, I'm curious, do you think she really thought when she, and I mean, you think she answered the, the ad to go over to be his au pair in Ireland that in the back of her mind, this was going, this was going to be how it was going to end. Or did she ever think maybe this is going to have a relationship that can work? That's what I don't understand I, about I, these people. That she was so desperate. Molly was desperate for children. To, for a child, she believed a child or children were the be all end all that would make her life perfect and make her happy. Obviously, that wasn't the case because she had Jack and Sarah. They called her mom. Of course, sometimes there was pushback from Jack. Uh, but for the most part, they considered her 
their mother. Um, and so she had it, but she wanted them to herself and she didn't want to have Jason. And I don't think she ever really cared about Jason or loved. He, he served a purpose. And if she could have adopted the children, she would have adopted the children and then divorced him and taken the children away from him. She never wanted Jason. She wanted his kids. And it would have been any man. Right. And and Cuckoo, as she is, she would have thought it's going to work. How can it not possibly succeed? Yeah. Look at me. But, um, you know, in the end, pretty can hide a lot. But there's a level of crazy that you can no longer tolerate. And I think Jason had reached a level of crazy he could no longer tolerate. Um, so he was like cutting his, ready to cut his losses. And there was really, there was also the very real possibility that, you know, Molly was going to bankrupt him. Yeah. I just, yeah, I, it's, it's a hard time. You know, I think I'm reasonably rational. It's just, it's hard for me to wrap my head around these people. They're just so insane. Like this girl who just can absolutely not seem to function in any sort of rational way or make, you well, know, make this work. That's also where I believe the borderline personality yeah, comes in. It it's has selfishness. To be, right? Exactly. You know, it's selfishness. Jason had value to her because he had children she wanted. When he would not let her adopt those children to then take away from him. Um, then she began the long game of trying to take them away by, by, uh, quote, proving, unquote, that he was abusive. Mm -hmm. And I've heard a couple of these tapes. And it's it's obvious, like, starting in the middle of something. So I'm thinking Molly baited Jason. And once he lost his temper, then she turned the tape on. And she exactly. would bait him in front of the kids. And then the kids would react. And she would record their distress. And it was, it's just, it's so disgusting that she's, you know, you don't hear a hundred percent. You hear the most damaging part and right. you don't hear what Molly said to Jason to push him to that level. Yeah. It just, I don't know. I just, I feel, you know, he seems like a really good guy and a good father and a good husband and mm. it just. It just feels like he just yeah. got completely. I mean, you know, yeah. If 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 she said if she, you know, gave I mean, him he her did, credit got card completely statement. manipulated and murdered by this crazy person and her father. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah I mean, he like, did, yeah, he did everything. Like, I mean, it, it, he was he. It, and she, Molly she took was, a mile and then got mad because she couldn't have two miles. Correct. Exactly. And and you know, this could have been. There was one that I heard where. Um, basically he's trying to talk to her, trying to eat his dinner. And she like cleared his plate and she's ignoring him and talking to the kids about doing something else. And I mean, it was just like, so totally obviously baiting him, but yeah, I mean the, 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 you know, some of the altercations or arguments could have been, Molly has a credit card in her name that she uses. She gives Jason the bill and he's like been telling her, you can't spend this much money for me to keep paying these bills. 
Oh, that must be my, um, okay. Uh, apologize to y'all if my internet's becoming unstable. Um, let me check my, my cord. Am I good now? You were just, you were cutting kind of in and out, like every couple of seconds, just kind of okay. waving. Out, but that weird. sounds better. Anyway. So, yeah, I, I mean, you know, Jason's told her many times you can't keep spending this much money. And yeah. yet she keeps presenting these exorbitant credit card bills. I think I guess maybe at the end of the day, what I'm searching for is the comment that I can't put my finger on is it seems like she's got a pretty good thing. Like she's really managed to get Land a on pretty nice man with nice kids very well to do she's got a really good thing going especially considering she was in a mental hospital a couple of years before i just it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that she can't just be content and say you know what this is really nice i'm going to learn how to get along with this man and i'm going to really i'm going to make this work because this is the best possible outcome for me but that's not how borderlines yep. work. <laughs> I understand. Yep. Under fair enough. With a borderline, when you cease to serve a purpose, you become surplus to their requirements. Yeah, too sure. And then they want to get rid of you by any means possible. Too uh, and I'm speculating Molly's never been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, but so many of the things in her relationship with Keith McGinn as well as her relationship with J with Jason, just, you know, uh, scream borderline to me based on my understanding of this order. Um, and so pretty much what we've got on August 1st, 2015, Jason has probably revealed that he is uh, ready to end the torture and he's ready to go back to Ireland and Molly is not part of that plan. And, you know, it was it was nice knowing you, but we're done. And so Molly has decided the long game of proving abuse and taking Jack and Sarah away that way is not going to work. So she's got to go with the short game. And even though the the circumstantial evidence proving this is only strong enough for me. It wasn't strong enough for a grand jury, and it likely would not be strong enough to survive proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I think Molly called her parents and said, I'm doing it tonight. You can either come help me or you can deal with it later. And, yeah. of course, high opinion of themselves that they have. They thought, OK, yeah, we'll we'll help her get rid of him. And so they come from Knoxville, which is like a five hour drive to um winston-salem arriving at 8 30 uh the family minus jack who was at a party ate pizza for dinner jack got home at around 11 o'clock and after that the family all went to bed now the only source for the events after that are molly and martin's and i'm going to say right now neither one of them deserve to be believed and I don't don't lay it out because I believe them. I just lay it out for context. So here's what we've got. Molly claims that Sarah woke from a nightmare, came to the master bedroom and woke Jason, who became so incensed 
that after she got Sarah back to bed, after she changed Sarah's sheets, she returned to the bedroom and Jason so incensed, he he tried to strangle her or tried to choke her with his hands. Now, Martins claims that he's downstairs in the room below the master bedroom. He hears sounds of a scuffle upstairs and he hears a scream. So he grabs a baseball bat, which is in the room because they didn't give it to Jack when he got home at 11 o'clock because I guess it's just too late to give a kid a present at 11 o'clock. And he goes upstairs to the master bedroom where he finds Jason choking Molly. Martins claims he ordered Jason to let Molly go, and Jason responded, I'm going to kill her. Martins then claims that they went back and forth like that three or four times, which to me isn't really credible. Um, no, I mean, it just doesn't seem, yeah, it doesn't it's seem It's like, credible. you know, two five-year-olds go back and forth like that three or four times. Grown-ups right. don't do that. Well, and uh, I mean, and again, grown-ups. There's no indication that Jason is not a even-tempered, rational person. It's just, you know, yeah. he's not on he's not on substances. I just it's just not behavior that seems logical. Right. All right. So then Martins claims Jason changed his grip on Molly and started dragging her toward the bathroom. Martins claims he was able to strike. Jason with the bat in the back of the head without striking Molly. He also claims that Jason took control of the bat and knocked him to the floor. Molly admits to then striking Jason in the head with a paving stone she'd brought into the bedroom so it wouldn't get wet. She claims she and the children were going to decorate the stone for the mailbox. Martins and Molly then claim but that why the would glow... she bring it into the bedroom? That doesn't make any sense okay. either. <laughs> That's another thing. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's kind of funny because later on the um, the kids' statements are going to come into play. So let's talk about that later on. Okay. I mean, um, I'm just I mean, believe me, I, I leave stuff around the house, but usually it's the it's out of laziness. Like I wouldn't carry a paving stone all the way to the bedroom yeah. to keep it out of the rain. It would usually be in the entryway or by the garage door. <laughs> Correct. Or the kitchen or wherever yeah. you do your crafts in the Laundry, house. Yeah. And I don't think they do crafts in the master bedroom because no. something tells me Jason would not approve of that. Um, so anyway, uh, Martins and Molly claim that the blow landed by Molly did nothing and that Jason and Martins continued struggling for control of the bat. Martin claims he got the upper hand in the in that struggle and then hit Jason repeatedly to ensure he couldn't kill both of them. Um, now, again, I don't put a lot of stock in that. It it every time I've seen Martin's tell this story, it sounds to me like he's reading from a script. He's memorized it, and he uses almost the exact same words and the exact same descriptors and the exact sequence. Yeah, and he really doesn't use a lot of emotional language except to prove that oh gosh i was in fear for my life and hers yeah well i mean not to mention his first blow is right to his head i mean yeah he could have hit him in the behind the back the left i mean he could have hit him a lot more places just to make him stop 
And I yeah. get you're going to tell us, but I'm guessing he never called 911 during this time. And and that's another thing too. I'm gonna I'm gonna go through some undisputed, corroborated, and objective facts that um basically refute parts of their story or don't certainly don't corroborate it or make you question their story. Um, in the early morning hours on eight, August 2nd, 2015, Martins used the Louisville slugger bat to beat Jason to death in the master bedroom and Molly struck Jason in the back of the head with the paving stone. Now, um, the autopsy actually believes that the, the paving stone was the, like the coup d'etat, the fatal, not the coup d'etat, that's not, not it, was like the fatal blow. All right. Um, so the sequence that Molly hit him is before Tom struck him repeatedly with the bat. So keep that in mind. Right. At the time of this altercation, Jason was not wearing any clothing. Jason was naked. Jason did not even have on a pair of tidy whities Okay. He was buck naked. Making him really vulnerable. Okay. Um, Martins and Molly were both clothed. Jason had trazodone in his system at the time yeah. of his death. Molly got a prescription for trazodone shortly before Jason's murder. Uh, and, and Jason had said something to his doctor about, you know, having like mood swings and, and getting angry for no reason suddenly and having dizzy spells. And those are consistent with being secretly dosed with drugs. Wow. And members of Jason's family suspect that Molly may have dosed them with drugs. His sister, Tracy, and another family friend uh, accepted drinks from Molly and then felt like roofied. Well, and again, I mean, I, I just go back. I mean, Jason seems like a successful, rational person. Let's just say hypothetically he was going to kill her. He was definitely smart enough not to do it while her parents were in the house. Like it just doesn't yeah. none of their yeah. story makes and, any sense. And Jason, if, Jason was a big guy. If he was gonna kill her, he's not gonna threaten to do it. He's gonna grab right, her chin exactly. and turn her head and break her neck. Yeah. And I mean, not to overthink I mean, it, he's probably gonna put some clothes on. I mean, I'm just thinking he's probably gonna put some clothes yeah, on while, knowing his parents are in the house. While Molly's tending to Sarah, he would have probably pulled on at least a pair of drawers. Right. So anyway, so there remain more facts. Um, Sarah and Jack remained sound asleep and were still sleeping when first responder, responders arrived, which leads me to question whether Sarah ever actually got up that night at all. Um, Sharon did not call 911 during the alleged domestic dispute or when her husband rushed into the fray with the baseball bat. She apparently stayed downstairs in the basement room in the guest room and didn't do shit. Well, and again, nor did her is... law enforcement husband tell exactly. her to call 911. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. This is a trained law enforcement expert who would be used to calling for backup, calling for 911. If he didn't call it himself, he absolutely would have yelled to his wife to do it. Yeah. And clearly didn't because the kids didn't wake up. Yeah. 
Paramedics observed that Jason's body was cold to the touch when they arrived. They also observed dried blood on Jason's body and around the scene. Neither Martin's nor Molly had a cut, scrape, bruise, abrasion, contusion, or any other sign of physical injury. Deputies observed Molly rubbing at her neck and throat and told her to stop multiple times. Molly's delicate bracelet was unbroken and still on her wrist. The only blood on Martin's and Molly's clothing belonged to Jason. The only blood, tissue, or hairs on the paver and bat came from Jason. Bloodstains on the walls were low, suggesting that Jason's head was on the ground or he was falling toward the ground when he struck. And there were bloodstains found on the pillow and bedding at the head of the bed. Initially, investigators took Molly and Martin's stories of domestic abuse at face value. They helped secure services for Jack and Sarah, believing that there may have been abuse in the home. Later, when investigators began assembling the pieces, and this is with search warrants for computers, phones, uh, social media, bank records. I mean, they had the, they, they ran the whole gamut of things, investigative avenues to pursue. Um, the picture that they developed was not a pretty one. The condition of Jason's body suggests that Martins and Molly had spent some time getting their story straight or ensuring that Jason was dead. Looking at the totality of Martin's statements on the 911 call and to investigators, he was too controlled and calm, even for a former law enforcement officer. The severity of Jason's injuries compared to the absence of any injuries on Mar Martins and Molly, who claimed that Jason was the aggressor, also led to question the veracity of their stories. Sharon Martins apparently has never made a statement either contradicting or corroborating her husband's statements or those of her daughter. She also did not contact 911 immediately, which should have been the first thing Martins would have instructed her to do. Post-defense, Molly made it known that she intended to cremate Jason and moved his body to hide it from his family who traveled from Ireland after Jason was murdered. Um, she forced his family to fight for everything. Um, yeah, I, I mean, think you know, they we... were able to get his body, but she was going to cremate him, which uh, some Catholics believe is like the worst thing you can do because well, they you know, believe your body this... has to be intact. Yeah. Well, we've talked about this before. A lot of like, and I get it, you know, I'm not talking legally. I'm just talking intellectually. You know, the way that people act after something like this tells you a lot. I mean, mm -hmm. you would think if she's truly defending her, her, for her, scared for her life, she's accidentally killed this man. She would feel horrible and remorseful and basically mm -hmm. say, please, I, you know, this is terrible. What I'm very sorry. I wish this hadn't happened. What can I do to make it easier for you to deal with this pain? Yeah. Not make it worse. Yeah. And she wouldn't she wouldn't tell the family where Jason was. She um, like I said, she moved the body at least once. She was going to cremate him, which the family made clear that, you know, he did not want. And so um, that was not only inflicting the trauma they inflicted on Jason, but then she turns around and starts inflicting it on. Yeah, exactly. You His family and no, no it on remorse the at all. And we'll talk about that a little bit later as well. Um, 
Martins gave a statement to investigators for the U.S. Department of Energy on August 20th, 2015, in which he claimed that Mags's father, Michael Fitzpatrick, told him that Jason killed Mags or was responsible for Mags' death. In that same statement, excuse me, Martins admitted that he didn't believe Fitzpatrick's statement was anything more than a father wanting to blame someone for his child's death. Initially, Martins claimed Mr. Fitzpatrick made the statement at Jason and Molly's wedding, but when it was pointed out that Mr. Fitzpatrick didn't attend the wedding, Martins changed the story to another occasion. It's also noteworthy that this alleged statement from Mr. Fitzpatrick and Martins later claim uh, that he believed uh, Jason killed Mags wasn't part of his early statement to investigators on August 2nd, 2015. So that's where I say Thomas Martins, if he wasn't a liar before this, he became a liar because then he's starting to make up more stuff to make it seem like Jason was this dangerous guy. And from what I understand, as I said earlier, Jason was a big guy. He could have, if he wanted to kill her, he could have very easily done so. But I really suspect that he would have had, wouldn't have had a clue how to do so. Yeah. Okay. Um, no matter how many movies he watched, he would not think he could take somebody's neck and just snap it. Anyway, so yeah, the statement, and... I, I'm going now, there becomes an estate dispute. Um, uh, and, well, and I you have... know, sorry, not not to interrupt you, but I've been trying to figure this out. One thing that is I don't know if this has been brought up, but unfortunately, I have not been able to see the actual dimensions of the bat. But and people listeners, feel free to yell at me because I'm riffing a little bit on the fly. That bat in the pictures looks way too small for what an eleven-year-old baseball player would use. Or he's all—he'll—he's almost eleven, right? He'll yeah, be eleven. He would the following have been, month. yeah, just shy of his eleven. That bat looks more like what a you know an eight-year-old would play with, which again just makes me really suspicious that he was bringing that bat over to his grandson as a present. Or step grandson. Step grandson. So apologies. Yes. Yeah, um, because it looks yes, it looks it, very small and like a really nice size if you were going to use it as a weapon. Yeah. It was but, described as a little league bat. Um I because don't I know my what, son played baseball for, you know, 10 years. And yeah. that was like something he had when he was seven and eight, not like okay. when he was 10 or eleven. That's a but again, I no, I don't see the measurements. Point. I'm just looking at it from the pictures. It looks way too small for what a 10 or 11 year old would use. Okay. That's an interesting point. There's also, um, in some of the research that I did uh, and some of the reading, there was also a, uh, a, a story in one of the Irish newspapers that said there were pictures of Jack with the bat prior to the murder. Prior to yeah, August, like probably maybe an old bat he had taken to their house to have if he visited. Which actually would defeat premeditated because if he brought the bat to kill Jason, that's premeditation. Exactly. If exactly. the bat was there, that defeats premeditation. 
Yeah, because if you look at it, if you know, because what you can do is, I mean, not to get too far on a tangent, but you know, the grips are kind of standard. So you can kind of guess the size of a bat looking at the grip to the rest of the barrel. It just looks really small and it yeah. looks worn, like, you know, like it had been played with a lot. So it just doesn't seem like something, you know, if if Martin's new, his step grandson at all, doesn't seem like this would be a present for an 11 year old who plays mm -hmm. baseball. Yeah. All right. Well, that's an interesting point. And I will look through because I know I have some of the forensic documents that I didn't really talk about that much. Um, but I'll look in there and see if there's any measurements or any any further identification of the bat. And I'll provide that to you. And because spoiler alert, there is going to be a retrial. We may talk yeah. about that. We We will definitely talk about the case again down the road. And maybe we'll have that information when we have it. So, all right, post-death, after Jason's death, there's an estate dispute. Because even though Molly thought she was going to make out like a bandit, um, Jason's family had the sophistication, thank God, to come to the United States and find attorneys. And hire attorneys. And they had, while it was probably a strain on their budgets they did at least have the means to um pay for attorneys to handle and so jason had taken out a last will and testament or signed a last will and testament on april 11 2007 and in that last will and testament he named david lynch his brother-in-law and lynn shanahan a childhood friend as executors of his estate and he named Tracy Corbett Lynch, his sister, and her husband, David, as testamentary guardians of Jack and Sarah. On August 8, 2015, um, the estate of Jason Corbett, represented by uh, David Lynch and Lynn Shanahan, probably, filed a petition to recover property that was filed seeking return of Jason's property from Molly uh, at, due to the Slayer statute. Apparently, there's a Slayer statute in North Carolina. So if you kill somebody, you can't then inherit. Um, now, there was a life insurance policy where Molly had been made the 100% beneficiary. And I believe that there wasn't a lot that they could do about that because that doesn't pass into the estate. Although they may have been able to sue her under with the Slayer statute to try and get those, those proceeds back. Um, and the insurance company, because she was involved and in causing his death, the insurance company may not have been quick to pay that out. Um, so they filed that and they alleged in the media that there were allegations in the media that she actually tried to keep Mags's wedding rings. And it cost them about $50,000 in attorney's fees to get the rings back from her. Um, there was back a, to my comment earlier. I mean, you just, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, innocent people don't behave this way. And not only that, she's actually, she's harming the children who are the heirs in the estate. Or right. Who are yeah. Also if you cared the about estate. the family, if you cared about his kids, like you purport to, you'd honestly shut up, give them everything and just go away and say, I don't want to remember any of this part of my life. This was terrible. I don't want to, I don't want anything from him. Mm -hmm. So on September 17, 2015, 
the parties entered into a, a, a consent order in which Molly agreed to cease use of the state assets. Um, now, I think the Slayer statute, she couldn't have access to any of the bank or any of the separate bank, the finances. She did have an interest in the house. And then there was a, a vehicle titled in both their names that she had interest in. If there was a joint bank account, although I don't think there was a joint bank account, um, she would have had an interest in that. But um, she thought she was going to get his bank accounts in Ireland and his bank accounts in the United States. And she had to forget about that. Um, so um, at this point in this stage of the proceedings, Molly is not winning. On January 21st, 2016, uh, Molly sent people to the house and removed most of the tangible property in the house, claiming it was her separate property. She left behind only Jason's clothing and a few items that he brought with him from Ireland. Um, she was also allowing her brother and her father to use a Honda Accord vehicle that was titled in her name and Jason's because, um, spoiler alert, they're out on bail. Uh, on the 21st, the same day, the estate filed a motion to enforce the consent judgment and a, uh, a request for a t temporary restraining order to prevent Molly from removing additional property or using estate assets. That TRO was granted on um, January 21st, and apparently there was also a hearing that day. Molly filed a response on January 26, 2016, and basically she just felt, she just claimed everything she took was hers. None of it was the estate. None of it was uh, community or, or marital property. All of it was her property, separate property. She purchased it with her credit card. On the 26th of January, the court scheduled a hearing for February 2nd, 2016 at 2.30 p.m. That hearing was held. A telephone conference was held on August 25th, 2016, to provide the court with additional evidence that had been gathered since the hearing through subpoenas uh, with additional briefing, etc. On March 7th, 2016, the court issued its order and their finding, its finding was that Molly had violated the consent order by taking jointly owned property from the home and allowing others to use the Honda Accord jointly titled to Molly and Jason. It found that assets were to be transferred to the court. It listed properties that Molly could retain. It gave Molly 30 days to return the property taken on January 21st, other than her separate property listed in number two. Uh, it gave the estate 60 days to sell the property with proceeds to be deposited to the court to hold until a final determination of uh, distribution was made by the court. Molly was ordered to pay $4,900 to the estate for the accord within 10 days. Molly was ordered to produce additional documents to corroborate her claims that some of the tangible property wrongfully removed, including her Honda Pilot, were purchased with her own funds, not money provided to pay her bills by Jason. It allowed Molly to continue using the Honda Pilot pending future orders. Uh, it declared a subpoena issued for Molly's financial records to be moved to be moot and it assessed cost of that action against Molly and provided that when the final distribution was made, 
cost would be assessed to the estate and Molly as necessary. Because so, I mean, where was she? Where were? The, what did she claim were the source of any of her own funds? Well, that's the thing. Uh, again, borderlines and 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 bipolars and liar liars like Molly don't really think things through. So she thought it's my credit card and I bought things with this credit card. Therefore, it's mine. And the caveat is if you don't pay the credit card bill with your own money, if you pay it with joint assets of the merit of the marital estate or your husband gives you his separate funds to pay your bills then, then it's, you're not paying with your money right. you're not paying with your separate funds you're paying with marital funds or you're paying with his funds if you pay with marital funds that means you have a half interest in all that stuff but the estate has a half interest as well Right. And if he's giving you the money to pay, then it was never really yours. Yeah, that makes sense. I just, you know. yeah, it's just, uh, that's, uh, she's fascinating. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, again, Molly is not winning. <laughs> so then uh, we have the custody dispute, and that was filed. Uh, the first action was filed. And so just to, sorry, just for the listeners to keep up, all this time, she's still not charged with murder. Is that correct? No, no. So she she's doing all of this and still, you know, correct. I guess she doesn't think she's going to face a murder charge. Correct. She believes that the authorities have declared this to be self-defense and that neither she nor her father will face any consequences. Um, so her the first action was actually filed in Superior Court. And that was an application for guardianship of um, of Jack and Sarah, which was filed on August 4th, 2015. On August 5th, 2015, Molly also filed a petition for custody in district court. Um, and so there were two separate actions. Um, and I'm going to try and keep it straight. But it was difficult at times. Um, that she filed this petition for custody, seeing custody of Jack and Sarah, and a temporary emergency ex parte order of custody. Um, so the ex parte order was issued on August 5th, 2015, granting Molly temporary emergency custody of Jack and Sarah. And that's necessary because in the absence of a custody order from the court where there are no natural uh, guardians available, the children would become wards of social services or wards of the state. So that was a that was important for Molly to do to keep them in a somewhat stable environment. Although being in control of the Martins slash Adams family, I don't know how great that would have been. Um, it also enjoined removal of the children from North Carolina pending hearing and further orders from the court. Um, on August 7th, Tracy Corbett Lynch and David Lynch also filed their own application for guardian, guardianship in the same superior court action that Molly filed her guardianship action in. 
The Lynch has also filed on August 12th, 2015, a motion to dismiss the district court proceedings because the superior court actions for guardianship had been filed first. Um, the There was a calendar call set on August 13th setting a hearing on August 20th, 2015 in the district court to uh, for the temporary custody and motion to dismiss hearing. There was also a hearing on the guardianship actions in Superior Court on August 14th, 2015. And then on August 17th, 2015, an order was issued by the Superior Court, which was not a judge, but was like a clerk, uh, appointing the Lynches as guardians of Jack and Sarah and ordering DSS to place Jack and Sarah with the Lynches. And then on August 18th, the Superior Court clerk, commissioner, I'm not quite sure what the what the title of the person is, uh, they, they entered a detailed order, which basically found that appointing Molly as the guardian would not be in Jack and Sarah's best interests in light of all the facts and circumstances, <laughs> i.e. she killed their daddy. Uh, and that Jack and Sarah are citizens of the Republic of Ireland and that it is in their best interest to return there with their father's family. So um, on August 18th, Jack and Sarah were taken into custody by DSS and transferred from the Martins family to the... Corbett Lynch family. Um, there was a motion to reconsider and motion to stay filed on August 18th by Molly. Uh, that was denied also on August 18th by the uh, the Superior Court. Uh, and then there was a hearing in district court on August 20th looking at Molly's custody action as well as the Lynch Corbett Lynch's motion to dismiss on November 2nd, 2015. The district court entered an order dismissing the district court custody proceeding on the grounds that Molly filed the superior court action first. So in a way, Molly screwed herself over uh, by filing the superior court action for guardianship and then filing the district court action the next day. She should have filed the district court action first and then the guardianship action. And why, just for the listeners that aren't experts, why, can you give a little quick summary? Why is that? Well, if she'd filed the, the, the district court action first, then she could have maintained the more formal custody proceedings in district court. She went to superior court, filed guardianship first. And the superior court is a less formal more streamlined procedure from what I can glean. But you can't have two actions in two separate courts for the gotcha. same thing. Uh, that makes sense. Basically. And that was what she was trying to do. She filed the guardianship for the immediate custody. And then the long-term custody she filed in the district court, which is a a, a more formal setting um that was dismissed and molly filed a notice of appeal on december 1st 2015 uh the sole issue was whether the trial court erred by granting the motion to dismiss um 
that was before the North Carolina Court of Appeals under Corbett versus Lynch, docket number 16-221. Uh, our oral argument was held September 6, 2016. And on December 20th, 2016, the North Carolina Court of Appeals issued its opinion when plaintiff's stepmother was granted ex parte temporary custody of her orphan stepchildren under North Carolina General Statute Chapter 50, defendant's aunt, subsequent North Carolina Gener General Statute Chapter 35A guardianship petition made the custody action moot because in the guardianship case, the clerk properly exercised jurisdiction as the children had no natural guardian and the clerk's jurisdiction was not divested by the ex parte temporary custody order since statute 35a contemplated the clerk considering other courts custody awards so the clerk had jurisdiction to appoint the children's general guardians an incident of which was physical physical custody any guardianship modification including custody modification required filing a motion with clerk under 35A instead of a district court custody action under Chapter 50. Again, she chose Chapter 50. She chose Chapter 35A first, so she has to go under Chapter 35A. She can't do 35A and then have a parallel Chapter 50 in case the 35A doesn't work out. Because that's basically what she wanted to do was pursue custody under Chapter 50 and one of the most ridiculous arguments that was made was it was somehow wrong for the clerk to to take Jason's will, which was uh, eight years old, over her six years in the children's lives. I mean, so anyway. But yeah, the, what really worked against her was the fact the kids were not Americans. Yeah. Kids... Now, do you think she just has bad counsel? I mean, because no. she seems to be making some bad blocking and tackling mistakes. No, she thinks, and I think this is the same with, with Thomas Martins. She thinks she's superior. She thinks everybody's got to believe her. She thinks she's a victim. And she thinks uh, I'm pretty and so people believe me and so i get my way and thankfully again in the custody she didn't win gotcha um the the children were uh grant you know the corbett lynches were granted custody i think they got a a, a permanent order basically and they were allowed to go back to ireland with jack and sarah so um, Tom Martins and Molly were uh, indicted on December 18th, 2015. They were charged with second degree murder and voluntary manslaughter. The docket numbers for Molly, for Corbett, I kind of, I, I kind of hated calling her Corbett, but she didn't divorce Jason and she's never gone back to her maiden name. Um, so I'm, I tried to call her Molly, which I, you know, I hate calling perpetrators by their first names because it makes it sound like I like them. So Molly's docket numbers were 16 CRS 00021 and 16 CRS 00022 and Martin's was 
uh, 16 CRS 00023 and 0024. Well, that the feels like there's some odd psychology in that too. I mean, if if you really believe this man was abusing you and trying to kill you, uh-huh. feels odd you would want to keep his name. This is true too. Again, not going to argue with you, but I, I again, I don't think it's really. I don't. I don't think. Sometimes I don't think even Molly believes her own bullshit. Yeah, I mean, it just that's what I think too. It's like I think she probably maybe there's some psych, maybe in some weird way she actually has some remorse, and that's like ways that she kind of, you know, I don't know. It's almost no. like missing. I don't. I don't know. It's strange. So, so anyway, um, Molly uh, and Martins were arrested on January fifth, twenty sixteen, by the Davidson County Sheriff. The DA in the case uh, was Gary W. Frank. Uh, the venue for this case is going to be General Court of Justice, Superior Court, Davidson County, Judicial District 22B. The docket numbers are 16 CRS, pardon me, 21 to 24, and the judge is the Honorable W. David Lee. Counsel for uh, Molly are Walter Holton Jr. and Cheryl D. Andrews. For Martins, David Friedman and Jones P. Bird Jr. And the uh, DA or assistant DA handling the case was Greg or Gregory Brown. Molly and Martins were arraigned and entered their pleas of not guilty on January 5th, 2016. They were released on January 19th, 2016 on bail. Um, Molly had a $200,000 secured bond. She was to have no contact with Jack and Sarah or the Corbett family. And she was to surrender her passports within five days. Now, she broke the no contact because she had social media uh, pages and uh, tried to contact the kids on social media. She also tried to get people to um, pass messages on to Jack and Sarah, like at school or outside of their home. She, there was, I also heard something about a plan to fly a plane with a banner over their school about how much she loved them. Well, if you really loved them, Molly, you wouldn't have murdered their daddy. So, um, that just, but she was never called on her attempts to contact the kids. Um, there may have been one hearing on it that the judge gave her the benefit of the doubt. Um, and then Martin's same terms, 200,000 secured bond, no contact with Jack, Sarah, or the Corbett family, and to surrender his passports within five days. There was an administrative setting on February 2nd, uh, February 10th, 2016. Not quite sure what that was about. Um, now, on, you remember we talked about the statement of Michael Fitzpatrick that was allegedly made to Martin's about Jason killing Max. Well, word apparently got to Mr. Fitzpatrick in Ireland, perhaps because it became, it was something Molly used in the custody or the uh, estate disputes, because on February 22nd, 2016, Michael Fitzpatrick went to a solicitor in Ireland, and he gave a sworn statement in which 
he vehemently denied ever telling Thomas Martins that um, he believed Jason killed Max. He said that he only met Martins once at a dinner in Knoxville, Tennessee, while he was visiting the U.S., and that he found Martins to be a private and reserved man with whom he had very general conversations, including about Mr. Fitzpatrick's past employment, his current job as a truck driver, and his time in the Irish Army. Mr. Fitzpatrick unequivocally stated that he didn't discuss his daughter's relationship with Jason or Molly's relationship with Jason or the circumstances of Mags' death with Martins at any time in this single meeting. Mr. Fitzpatrick said that such statements by Martins are totally and utterly untrue and mischievous. So, um, thankfully, the again, the statement, and I've I've heard Martin's brother-in-law, Michael Ernest, who's also an employee of the FBI and a big liar, liar, pants on fire. Um, So I I would think the FBI should be looking into that. Um, He's made the same statement that Fitzpatrick told him that Jason murdered his daughter. So uh, again, Mr. Fitzpatrick vehemently denies ever making such a statement. On April 12, 2016, a notice of a defenses is filed in which Corbett, uh, Molly, and and Martins say they're going to raise self-defense or defense of others as a defense to the murder charges and the voluntary manslaughter charges. A motion in limine was filed by the state on May 12, 2017, seeking to exclude hearsay statements made by Jack and Sarah to Union County uh, Social Services and at Dragonfly House after Jason's murders. Now, what happened was the Davidson County Sheriff, because of the allegation of domestic violence leading up to Jason's murder, were made in their initial investigation, they, they got services for Jack and Sarah. Um, I believe that the Martins family also got services for Jack and Sarah. They were staying in Union County with Molly's brother, Robert, who may or may not have been an FBI agent. One of her brothers has gone into the FBI, the other one not so sure. At the time, they were staying in the house with Robert. Robert was facing charges for DUI and endangering children because he apparently was driving drunk with his kids in the car. So um, that says a lot about this family. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't seem, I mean, they're the opposite of the kind of the FBI stereotype of buttoned up and clean cut and everything's on the up and up. They are more likely the, the type that abuse that power. Yeah, and Lord I, that I won't make any comments people. about our global world, but they, they feel more like 2022, 20, 23 FBI agents than they did, at least what I envisioned when I was a kid of mm-hmm. your FBI agent. Yeah. So um, I, I think they try to turn that position to their advantage and yeah. to use it against people and to threaten people. Um, so, yeah, I don't think they're good FBI agents. I think that they're megalomaniacs. FBI agents. Um, so anyway, so while the, when the children were interviewed by Union County, 
while they had been in control of the Martins family, they did make statements that supported allegations of domestic violence within Molly and Jason's marriage. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I guess, I don't know. I feel like I'm beating a dead horse trying to rationalize her behavior, but you know, I'm kind of surprised that Martins who seemingly has a lot of impact on his daughter, you know, just didn't tell her, Hey, just be quiet, keep your mouth shut, keep your head down and just hope this goes away. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised he never stopped her from trying to like continually poke the bear, which is what she seems to do constantly. Um, well, I think because I think the thing is, is that he's like, yeah, sure, we can get away with it. Yeah, he's just a such I'm a an F- show, yeah, I am an FBI point. agent. Yep. I am top clearance with the Department of Energy. Nobody is going to not believe me. Yep. That is exactly what I think. Yeah, I think you're hundred percent. So, uh, and they they made similar statements at Dragonfly House uh, that tended to support the. Uh, allegations of domestic violence within um, Molly and, and Jason's marriage. And Jack also explained the presence of the paver in the master bedroom by saying, well, we were going to paint it, but it was raining. So we left it in my mom's room on her desk, which is her bedside table, actually, because there was no desk in the right. master bedroom. But I'm going to say right now for anybody who says, oh, we'll see, there's an innocent explanation. It doesn't take a lot for an adult to maneuver a kid into thinking something makes sense that really doesn't. Right. So the fact that Jack corroborates what Molly explained doesn't necessarily mean that Molly's explanation makes any more damn sense just because Jack corroborates it. Right. From what I could tell of the of the layout of the house, there was not a door from the master bedroom onto the back patio where you might do such arts and arts and craft projects and you might bring everything into the master bedroom. Yeah, and um, I mean it's just common sense, Lisa. I mean, your your nightstands aren't that big. You're gonna scratch the furniture with a paver. And, and that's I mean, another thing, too. Exactly. You, you yes. know how this is. Like you live it, I get yelled at it about it. How many times, you know, especially ladies, but men and women get up in the middle of the night, go to the bathroom. They're not going to trip over a paver sitting there in the middle of the floor. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just not common sense. There's no way that she's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go put the paver on my nightstand. Uh My wife would murder me if there was a paver sitting. No pun intended. Sorry, that was in bad taste. I mean... (laughs) If no. I mean, if there was a paver sitting on my nightstand, my my wife would give me the look, which is basically that thing better be gone before you're out of here on the couch. Uh huh. And she puts up with a lot of mess. I I'm I, I will bring stuff and drop it on the floor, but a paver would not even pass her standards of patience. <laughs> so anyway, um, so yeah, on May twelfth, twenty seventeen, there was a flurry of motion. There was a Motion filed by Martins and Molly to declare the minors unavailable. There was a notice of intent to introduce hearsay statements and a memorandum in support seeking to introduce these statements by Jack and Sarah made to Union County DSS and Dragonfly House, uh, which support Martins and Corbett's self-defense claims. They were also seeking to introduce all of Molly and Martins' uh, statements to investigators 
so that Molly and Martins could get the self-defense story in without actually having to testify and be subject to cross-examination. And that is common because in a self-defense case, it is very difficult to, to prove self-defense if the person alleging self-defense does not actually testify. And so that's common that they'll try to get as many out-of-court statements in as they can without actually having to testify. And that's a common defense tactic. On um, May 31st, 2017, Martins filed a notice of intent to introduce statements and memo and support regarding the uh, statements made by uh, Michael Fitzpatrick about Max's death. Michael Fitzpatrick had died in October of 2016. And obviously, Martins and his attorneys apparently were unaware that Mr. Fitzpatrick had gotten wind of these false statements being made by Thomas Martins and had sought, gone to a solicitor to set the record straight prior to his death. So, uh, he basically said that, you know, Michael Fitzpatrick told him that Jason killed Mags, uh, and he admitted that he didn't tell Davidson investigators about the statement, but then he as says, I did mention it to the DOE investigators. But again, he didn't tell the DOE investigators that he believed it to be true or that it had any part in his state of mind on August 2nd, 2015. Um, the state on June 7th, 2017, filed a motion and notice to exclude statements, and it include, included a lot of evidence. It included Mags's autopsy and coroner's reports to refute the claims that her death was a homicide committed by Jason. It included Mr. Fitzpatrick's sworn statement disavowing making any statement to Martins about circumstances of Mags's death, and it uh, included statements from Jack and Sarah including their diary entries, which recanted the statements they made in August 2015 while still in care of Molly and her family. And there was also an interview with Jack in 2016, I believe, with a DA that he said, I lie because the Martins told me to lie. And he recanted his statements. Um, so on June 11, 2017, Martins and Molly's Motion for change of venue, an order was entered denying their change of venue. Um, I have some of the records. They didn't challenge the change of venue or the failure to change venue on appeal. So that wasn't part of the record on appeal. The trial was conducted by Greg Brown or Gregory Brown uh, on behalf of the state of North Carolina. Counsel for the accused was still Holton and Andrews and Friedman and Bird. Um, the trial was held July 17, 2017 to August 9, 2017. There was apparently a hearing on August 4th regarding the um, motion in limine to exclude statements and the motion to admit hearsay statements. Um, the court, while finding that Jack and Sarah were not available, they also found that admission of their statements under Rule 803. Uh, 803 Section 4, a uh, case called State versus Hennett, and 803, Section 24, their statements were not admissible under any of those 
circumstances or exceptions and denied in open court the admission of those statements. They it denied the admission of Michael Fitzpatrick's statement and also denied admission of hearsay, hearsay statements made by Molly and Martins. Those were all denied in open court at that hearing. On uh, basically the ruling of the court without access to the transcripts, which weren't part of the record lodged or the public lodging of the record at the Court of Appeals. Um, I can only infer from Irish media articles, which are the bomb, because they present both sides um, and they are very detailed. So I have to give the Irish journalists big props because I was able to learn a lot about Molly and Jason and the families through these articles, whereas I didn't learn that much through American media sources, other than the party line, which they apparently are going to believe self-defense. Um, basically, the court found in declaring this statement inadmissible from Jack and Sarah that because Jack made direct statements recanting his statements and both Jack and Sarah recanted their statements and diary entries, the court reasoned that admission of the statements requested by the defendants would also require admission of the statements recanting those statements. Not doing so would potentially mislead the jury. Now, it's funny because the diary entries and the statement Jack made to the district attorney's office recanting his statements in August of 2015 are poo-pooed by the Martins and Molly attorneys as being not worthy of belief because they were in the control of Jason's family when they made those statements. And when that attorney, when one of those attorneys was making that argument during uh, the oral argument before the North Carolina Supreme Court, I was like, and where the heck do you think the August 2015 statements came from? Thin air? Whose control were yeah. they in then? No, seriously, hmm? that's crazy. So um I got very nice. I get very upset sometimes listening no, I to these attorneys. This is I know. They should do better. It makes no sense. Yeah. So if you're gonna argue that, then you should be looking at the statements you want and yeah. they want to they want to admit those statements to mislead the jury of course to make it sound like there was domestic violence in that household um and then with fitzpatrick i do have on the record what the judge said about not admitting mr fitzpatrick's or not letting martins testify to what mr fitzpatrick allegedly told him and he said, the judge said, all right, I've carefully considered the alleged statement of Mr. Fitzpatrick with respect to the cause of Margaret Corbett's death. I've considered the totality of the circumstances relating to this hearsay statement, the self-serving nature of it. And in my discretion, I have determined under Rule 403 that the probative value of this evidence substantially is outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice confusion of the issues, and misleading to the jury. So I will not per permit the statement of Mr. Fitzpatrick through Tom. 
um, which I think is a good thing. And and he wasn't he wasn't excluding it because it was hearsay. He was excluding it because he found it was more prejudicial than probative. Right. Um, but in the appeal, they focused on hearsay and ignored this analysis, which was, you know, spot on. Um, and before I go any further, I agree with the court's reasoning that if he admitted the hearsay statements to the Dragonfly House and Union County, he should admit the recanting statements. I also think he found that in light of the fact that the kids have recanted, that means their statements don't have indicia of trustworthiness because they've said we lied. Um, I And I agree with that. Court of North Carolina Court of Appeals did not. But I agree. I think that was the right call because it would be unfair to admit the statements helpful to Martins and Molly and ignore the fact that the kids now say that wasn't true. Um, but yeah, I think again, that makes sense. I, I don't sit on the North Carolina court of appeals, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, the verdict uh, was on August 9th, 2017. And both Molly and Martins were found guilty of second degree murder. They were sentenced on the same date to 20 years minimum, 25 years maximum. Uh, the court took into account that Martins was a 30-year was a FBI employee, but basically sentenced him to the same sentence as Molly. Yeah, if anything, I think that should warrant a longer sentence. You know, we have should have higher expectations yeah. out of federal law enforcement or any law enforcement. Um, Martins and, and Molly made an, an oral motion notice of appeal in um, on August 9th, 2017, the court uh, filled out the appellate entries form, which is like a formal document that is required in the Court of Appeal. On August 11th, 2017, 2020 aired a pretrial interview conducted with Molly and Martins in which they went heavily with the self-defense bullshit. Um, and my own experience with 2020, <laughs> I, I won't even bother to watch that. No, because it's... I know they slanted it in favor of Molly and Martins. Yeah. And, you know, if they if they gave any any interviews with um, Jason's family, they probably misrepresented facts. Yeah. They probably even implied that Jason had killed Max. Yeah, they definitely have an agenda. Um, so then. Martins and Molly filed a post-trial motion for appropriate relief on August 16, 2017, alleging juror misconduct uh, based on post-trial interviews and social media posts of certain jurors that portrayed juror misconduct throughout the proceeding, including private conversation between jurors prior to closing arguments and during deliberations, both inside and outside the courthouse that jurors formed or expressed opinions regarding Corbett's character and mental state outside the evidence presented at trial, that jurors formed opinions regarding Corbett's role as aggressor outside the evidence presented at trial and in direct contradiction to the court's findings of fact and law on the issues and the state's agreement that no evidence was presented 
that the jurors that a juror provided less than candid answers to the court's inquiry regarding fitness to serve on the jury, that jurors expressed opinions during the presentation of evidence, and that additional juror comment, comments indicated bias. They filed a supplement to their motion for appropriate relief on August 25th, 2017, which basically just filed additional evidence in support of the motion. Um, they state filed a response on September 8th, 2017, uh, basically arguing that demeanor is subject to observation. So they didn't have to use outside the evidence or out, you know, evidence not presented. Um, they could have observed how she acted in court. They also uh, argued that cases that were being relied on did not support the constitutional claims raised by Martins and Molly. The, um, they filed, Ma Martins and Molly filed an amended response, or no, the state filed an amended response, sorry, on September 18th. Um, they argued that jurors may not impeach their verdict except in very limited circumstances, which were whether the verdict was reached by lot, which I guess, not really sure what that means. Um, I'll have to look that up next time it comes up. Uh, whether that verdict was the result of bribery, intimidation, or attempted bribery, intimidation, or whether matters not in evidence which came to the attention of one or more jurors under circumstances which would violate the defendant's constitutional right to confront the witnesses against them. And that's like if a juror brings a Bible into the deliberations, or if a juror brings a media article that says, um, you know, Molly killed her fiance, Keith McGinn, or that Molly's a suspect in another murder of her high school boyfriend, or, you know, something along those lines, or that Thomas Martins was, you know, drummed out of the FBI for being a lying sack of crap. Um, and they also said that the, the defendant's allegations were not encompassed by the limited exceptions, that their evidence was speculative, and that the documents and proposed speculative testimony of jurors was inadmissible. Because I think what happened was that, you know, the, the state said, well, if we, you know, if this juror testified, this is what he would say. Um, on the October 16, 20, uh, 2017, the court set a deadline of November 21st, 2017 for the court reporter to complete transcription of the record. On October 18th, 2017, the court entered a formal order excluding the hearsay statements of Jack and Sarah, finding Jack was 10 on August in August of 2015. Sarah was seven in August of 2015. The court found no evidence of treatment motivation on the part of the children when their declarations were made. The court found the children believe the interviews were to affect future legal custody determinations because one of the fears expressed by the kids when they were in the Martins custody was that their aunt was going to come to the United States and rip them away and take them back to Ireland. Um, that the children had no actual knowledge of the events uh, leading to Jason's murder, that everything they knew was hearsay from Molly or her mother that many of the statements about Jason's murder were double hearsay um, and not their personal knowledge. The children's statements were not made at a time when they were motivated to speak the truth, but were motivated by to affect future custody arrangements. 
that the children feared they would be taken away from their mother and removed to another country, and that the statements about the relationship between Molly and Jason had been specifically recanted by the children. The court's conclusions were that the children were residents of the Republic of Ireland outside the subpoena power of the court and were therefore unavailable, that the statements were not admissible under the first prong of Hennant as they were not made in to obtain medical treatment. Uh, and you know what? People don't always tell the truth to their doctors. Um, you know, Molly tells her doctors that she has a sibling who died when that's not true. She didn't have a sibling who died. Um, the statements didn't satisfy the second prong of Hennett as they were not pertinent to diagnosis or treatment. The statements were not admissible under 803 section four, that they were not based on personal knowledge of the children, that they had no guarantee of trustworthiness and were not admissible under 803.24, that the order was entered in in substance of the court's ruling on the record on August 4th, 2017, and that the parties had agreed that the written order could be signed out of county and out of session. Because apparently a lot of um, a lot of courts, it's a circuit. And so you go from county to county, the judges go from county to county to county. And they go from the county to county to county on a on a session basis. So this judge was in Davidson County when he heard the the motions and held the trial, but he could enter the order when he was in Forsyth County in session in Forsyth County and no session being held in Davidson County. That's basically what that means. Um, The court reporter filed a motion for extension of time to file, to complete transcript, which on, uh, on November 16th, which was granted on the 17th, she was given till December 21st, 2017. Um, The court filed an order on December 4th, 2017, on the motion for appropriate relief, finding no support, no supporting evidence in the record, and that the defendants had presented no admissible evidence to merit an evidentiary hearing. Their evidentiary hearing request was denied and relief was denied. A notice of appeal was formally filed on uh, December 6, 2017, to the North Carolina Court of Appeal. Uh, the court reporter delivered the transcript on December 18, 2017. Uh, That transcript ended up being 3,190 pages. Then um, there were multiple orders for extensions of time to prepare prepare and serve the record on appeal. Um, That's something where the parties get together and they decide what's what's relevant to their appeals or the issues being appealed. And um, that was multiple orders were filed and granted and the record was ultimately due on June 20th, 2018. Uh, The Corbett was represented on appeal by Douglas Kingsbury and Melissa H. Hill. So she changed attorneys on her direct appeal. Martins, however, stuck with Friedman and Byrd. And then the state was represented by Alan Martin. Uh, the, The venue was North Carolina Court of Appeals. Docket number was 18-714. Corbett raised five issues, whether the trial court erred in denying the motion to dismiss second-degree murder charge based on insufficient evidence at the close of all evidence, 
whether the trial court erred in denying her motion to dismiss the voluntary manslaughter charge, whether the trial court er committed prejudicial error in instructing the jury that they could find Corbett guilty based on a theory of acting in concert with Martins. Did the trial court commit prejudicial error in sustaining the state's objection to the admission of statements by Jack and Sarah Corbett under 803 Section 24 of the North Carolina Rules of Evidence? Or did the trial court commit prejudicial error in sustaining the state's objection to the admission of the statements made by Jack and Sarah Corbett under 803 Section 4? Um, that's in connection and a hearsay exception for medical treatment and diagnosis. Um, Martin's raised, uh, I think it was 11 or 12, 11 issues, um, whether the failure to grant appropriate relief with respect to jurors' discussion of the evidence prior to being charged, whether that was a trial court error, whether the trial court erred when it failed to grant the motion for appropriate relief with respect to juror Perez's untruthful statements to the court? Uh, did the trial court err in allowing Stuart James to give expert testimony in the field of bloodstain pattern analysis as to bloodstains on Martin's and Corbett's clothing in contravention of Rule 702 of the Rules of Evidence? And basically what that boiled down to was in, his, in James's examination of the pants worn by, Mar by, by Molly and the boxer shorts being worn by Martins at the time Jason was murdered. The state did not do confirmatory DNA testing on those blood, those areas of the clothing to, pr to prove that they were blood and to prove that they were Jason's blood. Basically, that's what it runs down to. They tested multiple areas, but those were two areas not tested. James wasn't aware of that, uh, but he said that that would not have changed his opinion about those blood spatters. So basically, they're arguing kind of nitpicky that James couldn't opine about, quote, blood spatter that wasn't proven to be blood spatter. I don't know whether the defense is trying to say it was grape juice or strawberry jam right. or raspberry jam or something, because... Hmm. You know, he couldn't prove it was blood. He didn't have confirmatory testing. It was blood. Therefore, he couldn't opine because that was one of the most damaging parts is that those stains. It was James's opinion that those stains occurred. With blows to Jason's head while Jason was on the floor. And there were blows that in the autopsy report that the medical examiner declared were postmortem. So Jason was dead when they were inflicted. Yeah. And again, I think the, the medical examiner found that the, the blow to the back of his head with the paver was a fatal blow. Um, Generally, is it odd that, you know, Corbett only raised five objections, but Martin 11 for the no, same trial? No, that's not. They, they had separate appeals. <laughs> and I think... Um, you know, sometimes you throw it all at the wall and you see what sticks. And sometimes you try to you try to really present only your strongest issues and arguments. And I think that was what or it, because they were they were tried together and appealing together. It may have been that Martin's was given you appeal these issues 
and no, then we'll both appeal them up. these issues. You know, um, and it may have also been, you know, Martin's was the one trying to to uh, get in Fitzpatrick's statements. Molly wasn't trying to get those in. You know, that so makes sense. yeah, and, and it may have been based on what they raised at trial. Um, so, uh, then the trial court, did the trial court err when it failed to allow testimony from Martin's relating to Corbett's statement or Molly's statement to Jason during the alleged incident, don't hurt my dad, as that statement would have been relevant to Martin's state of mind? Uh, did the trial court err when it failed to allow testimony from Martin's relating to prior statements by, and this one, this one, when I came across this one in the pleadings, I literally had steam coming out of my ears. They refer in their pleadings, Thomas Martins, this is what a piece of crap he is. He referred to Mr. Fitzpatrick as Mikey Fitzpatrick, like they were best fucking friends. And I don't care if Mr. Fitzpatrick's friends called him Mikey. Him, Martins, attorneys, and Martins pretending to have that familiarity with Mr. Fitzpatrick is disgusting. Absolutely, totally disgusting. Indicating that um, Mr. Fitzpatrick believed the decedent killed his daughter, which would have been relevant to Martin's state of mind. But again, in Martin's statements about the alleged statement, he never claimed that he believed it or that he believed it meant Jason had murdered Max or that it had any impact on his state of mind on August 2nd, 2015. And are you still there, Kyle? Yep, I'm still okay. here. <laughs> I wanted to make sure I wasn't gone. No, <laughs> no, you're all good. <laughs> um, then uh, er, er, issue number six, did the trial court Aaron denying the motion to dismiss secondary murder based on uh, insufficient evidence at the close of all evidence as all evidence presented a prima facie case of self-defense and defense of others, which isn't true. Uh, did the trial court err in denying the motion to dismiss the voluntary manslaughter charge? Same thing. It didn't really, it, it didn't really um, establish a prima facie case of self-defense or defense of others because there were multiple blows, no injuries, and the fact that some of the blows may have been post-mortem. Um, did the trial court err in allowing the jury to consider whether Martins was the aggressor when there was insufficient evidence to support that instruction? Did the trial court err when it instructed the jury that they could consider Martin, whether Martins was acting in concert with Molly, where there was insufficient evidence to support that instruction? Did the trial court commit prejudicial error in sustaining the state's objection to the admission of statements made by Jack and Sarah Corbett under 803 section 24 and 803 section 4? So um, the parties filed a stipulation that the record on appeal had been settled, which means we've both looked at the record on, on appeal. We've put in what we need to put in and it's complete. So that prevents um, a month before the brief is due, one party or the other coming in and saying, oh, wait a second, we have to supplement the record with this or we have to supplement the record with that. Uh, the record on appeal was served on the state by Corbett's counsel on July 5th, 2018. Oral argument was held on January 31st, 2019. And then the Court of Appeal rendered its decision 
on February 4th, 2020. They held that the trial court did not abuse its discretion by denying defendants motion for appropriate relief based on alleged juror misconduct without conducting an evidentiary hearing because defendants' allegations of juror misconduct were general, speculative, and conclusory. And even if the trial court had held an evidentiary hearing, precedent prohibiting verdict impeachment under North Carolina General Statute Section 8C-1, North Carolina Rule of Evidence 606B, would prevent defendants from presenting any admissible evidence to prove the truth of their allegations. But the Court of Appeal found that the trial court did err by excluding Jack and Sarah's interview statements because the statements events, the requisite intent under North Carolina General Statute Section 8C-1, North Carolina Rule of Evidence 803, Section 4, as that it was evident from their conduct and responses that they understood the importance of honesty and the statements clearly pertain to medical treatment or diagnosis. And again, I really don't, uh, I don't agree with that. Say it again. They were in a social services atmosphere while because of the uh, allegations of abuse, there is a medical component of the social services evaluation. Their statements were made to social workers who were not diagnosing or treating them. And again, they had been in the Martin's custody and the Martins had told them what to tell. Yeah, of course. The right. social services people. Absolutely. To avoid being taken away from quote yeah. their mother. And yeah, you'll note on the on the case notes, Jack and Sarah are in brackets because it said excluding defendants' children. And I was like, oh no, you MFers, no. They were never her children. Right. They were her stepchildren, but yep. they were never her children. So I put Jack and Sarah in, in brackets. So they denied them. Uh, the order denying the motion for appropriate relief was affirmed, but the convictions were reversed and the case was remanded for a new trial based on the exclusion of the, the hearsay statements of Jack and Sarah. Basically, they found that excluding those statements prevented martins and and molly from presenting a complete defense again i disagree but i don't sit on the north carolina court of appeals and therefore my disagreement means little or nothing however there was a concurrence and dissent filed by it was a the majority opinion was two judges and a concurrence and dissent was filed by the third judge Uh, Judge Collins, concurring in part and dissenting in part, stated, I concur in the majority opinion that the trial court did not err by, one, denying defendants' request for an evidentiary hearing on their motion for appropriate relief, MAR, denying defendants' MAR, or denying defendants' motions to dismiss for insufficient evidence. I respectfully dissent from the remainder of the majority opinion that leads to its conclusion that defendants are entitled to a new trial. So then... The state appealed to the North Carolina Supreme Court because they had the dissent. Um, uh, The state was represented by Jonathan P. Babb and Michael L. Dodd. It went before the Supreme Court of North Carolina, docket number 73A20. Um, the, The state initially filed a petition for writ of supersedus, 
and motion for temporary stay on February 21st, 2020. They uh, basically held, uh, advised the court that they intended to file a notice of appeal as of right based on Judge Collins' dissent within 15 days. A temporary stay was needed to stay enforcement of the mandate for pending the Supreme Court's consideration of the state's petition. Absent issuance of a temporary stay and writ of supersedis, defendants will be entitled to proceed in the trial court and commencement of new proceedings in the trial court may moot any appeal before this court uh, because you can't have parallel actions going on. Now, supersedis uh, is a Latin term that means you shall desist. And it refers to a stay of the enforcement of a judgment pending appeal or a writ or bond that suspends a judgment creditor's power to levy execution, which means if, uh, uh, say, the IRS gets a judgment against you, if you file a writ or supersedis, although with the IRS, you're pretty much screwed, um, you can file a writ or supersedis while you appeal the judgment preventing the, the IRS from or any creditor from starting to execute on their judgment and seize your assets uh, to satisfy their judgment. Um, on the 24th of February, an order was issued uh, allowing the motion by order of the court and conference this 24th of February 2020, which was on the uh, motion for temporary stay. So when the new trial was granted, the temporary stay kept Molly and Martins in prison in North Carolina mm, gotcha. while the Supreme Court decided the, the appeal filed by the state. Uh, then the state did file its notice of appeal on March 10th, 2020. The issues raised were whether it was prejudicial error for the trial court to exclude from evidence Sarah and Jack's interview statements. And what that basically means is was it prejudicial to the defense or would the statements have had little, if any, impact on the jury's verdict? Did the absence of the statements have impact on jury's verdict? And one of the one of the allegations was that Jack's explanation of the presence of the paver um, would have helped Molly. But again, I say reasonably and logically, any adult is not going to find an explanation given by a 10-year-old child to be the be-all, end-all and say, oh, yes, she must be telling the truth. Right, because exactly. an adult can maneuver a kid into thinking something makes sense. Fathers do it all the time. When they screw well, and, something up, they yeah. get the kids on their side and maneuver the kids into giving an explanation that mom will hopefully buy. Well, and again, I mean, it's a little bit of common sense, too, because, like, that's just not something that you would expect a parent to explain to the child. Oh, hey, I would like to explain why is this paver on my nightstand? This, I mean, it's just not something you would expect that yeah. would warrant an explanation. So the other, uh, whether it was prejudicial error for the trial court to admit into evidence the testimony of the state's expert witness in bloodstain pattern analysis in the absence of confirmatory testing that proved the stains were blood um, and were Jason's blood, whether it was prejudicial error for the court to exclude Martin's testimony that he heard Molly scream, don't hurt my dad, whether it was prejudicial error for the trial court to instruct the jury on the aggressor doctrine with respect to Martin's, 
and whether the errors alleged by defendants alone or in the aggregate were so prejudicial as to warrant a new trial. Um, and now some of these issues, the North Carolina Court of Appeal didn't decide on because they basically said uh, excluding Jack and Sarah's statements was bad enough. They deserve a new trial on that alone. And then they didn't really decide anything else. Uh, the dissent went on to to comment on other issues. And I think what the state did in this particular case was even though the Court of Appeals didn't decide, the issues were raised. So they wanted the Supreme Court to weigh in because if the Supreme Court weighs in, that becomes law of the case. And so the state, you know, for example, if the if the Supreme Court says no, James's testifying without confirmatory testing was not prejudicial. It didn't have a big impact on the jury's verdict. Therefore, they could have James testify. Whereas if the if the Supreme Court finds this was this was prejudicial error, then they're not going to be James is not going to be able to testify to perhaps the most damaging. Uh, that makes sense. Bit in the absence of testing on the clothing. Right. Yeah, being yeah, conducted now. Sense. Which it could be done. I mean, the the state could go back and anything that was not tested could be tested. So there is always the potential in a retrial, A, for obtaining new, stronger evidence, but B, the state knows exactly what Molly and, and Martins are going to do. And the state is going to have the 2020 interviews now for cross-examination if Thomas Martins decides to testify again. And so if he, any little detail that's yep. different in that testimony, in that interview, they can he's now get play that in big trouble. Yep. and make it look like he's making shit up again. You know? yep. So there is a little bit of hope. Um, right. So the Supreme Court issued multiple orders um, again, they uh, they allowed the writ of supersedis in conference on March 11th, 2020. Um, Martins and Molly filed motions to strike the proposed scope of review filed by the state. They filed a motion to limit the review to the issues set out in the dissent. Um, and then on the 18th, they filed a motion to amend those motions. Uh, on March 20th, 2020, an order was entered on the motion for extension to, of time to file the appellant's brief, granting the motion for extension of time. The appellant brief was filed by the state on May, May 8th, 2020. Um, Corbett Molly filed her brief on June 5th, 2020. Apologize, I occasionally will call her Corbett. Um, the appellee, Martins filed his appellee brief on June 8th. Uh, the state filed a reply brief on June 22nd. They also filed a motion to strike portions of Molly's new brief, which I think she filed an appellee brief and then she filed a new brief. And in the new brief, she included a transcript and audio video recording of her August 2nd, 2015 statement to investigators that was not before the jury. Um, they uh molly filed a motion a response to the motion to strike on the 23rd of june the 
uh, state file a reply brief on the 25th of June. Um, Molly filed a motion for leave to amend her citations in her new brief. And an exhibit was filed on the 21st of July, 2020. And then on August 12th, the court entered multiple orders. Um, it denied the motion to limit scope of review to the issue set out in the dissent. It dismissed as moot the um, conditional petition filed by the state. It denied the motion to strike uh, portions of Molly's brief or her new brief. It dismissed as moot the motion for leave to amend citations in the new brief. It denied the motion to strike the state's proposed scope of review. And it denied the, oh, I did that twice, sorry. Uh, the state limit, the state's scope of review was also denied. Oral argument was held on June, uh, January 11th, 2021. That's the one that I got mad because they <laughs> were saying, oh, well, you can't trust the recantations because they were in the control of the Corbett's family. It's like, well, then how can we trust the ones where they were in control of the Martins? Right. Exactly. You know what I mean? <laughs> so yep. um, they issued their decision on March 12th, 2021. They held that the trial court erred in ruling that the statements by the victim's children regarding the victim's relationship with his right, wife and their own relationship with their father and stepmother were inadmissible under 803 section 4 because the children properly identified the event which triggered the forensic interview and were aware of the need to be truthful, which I don't find to be exactly supported, but Again, I don't sit on the North Carolina Supreme Court. It was an abuse of discretion for the trial court to exclude the statements that the victim's children's made in their interviews with the Department of Social Services social worker under the residual exception of the hearsay rule contained in Rule 803.24 because the statements were trustworthy, they were material and probative, and their admission served the interest of justice by enabling defendants to present an adequate defense. And they affirmed the judgment of the Court of Appeal. Um, again, I disagree with that. Um, I, I also find that them ignoring the existence of statements recanting those original statements is pretty crappy. Uh, there was a dissent by Justices Berger, and he was joined by Chief Justice Newby and Justice Beringer. Uh, Justice Berger stated the analysis by the majority contains three fundamental flaws. Concerning preservation, the majority creates an argument for defendants. And I think there was a an issue raised as to whether the law as presented to the appellate courts was what the defendants had presented in the trial court as the grounds for objecting to the trial court's order. In other words, they they presented one set of grounds to the trial court, and then they argued different grounds before the appellate courts mm -hmm. to prove error. So, um, but that's, it, it, that was kind of a, 
a complicated and very boring part of the majority opinion that I kind of lost track of. <laughs> so, um, At least the way you explained it, though, it made sense. Like the way he said that it seems like you can't, it seems like you're right. kind of moving the goalposts. Correct. That is what, that is the impression that I was also getting while I was trying to read it. In addition, throughout the opinion, the re majority reweighs the evidence. Finally, and perhaps most remarkably, the majority engages in a de novo analysis of issues which should be reviewed for an abuse of discretion. Because defendants received a fair trial free of prejudicial error, and they cite State versus Maliki, quoting State versus Ligon, the trial court's judgments should be affirmed. Therefore, I respectfully dissent. So the retrial goes before the Honorable Judge David Hall. The Molly and Martins filed a motion for change of venue from Davidson County around January 3rd, 2023. Uh, a gag order was imposed by the court on the parties, attorneys, and families on January 3rd, 2023. Um, which is why uh, I spoke to you briefly. I'm following Tracy Lynch or Tracy Corbett Lynch on social media. I have uh, contacted a support page on Facebook, but I'm not seeking to talk to them privately or on air at this time because I don't want to get anything out there that may jeopardize a guilty verdict at a retrial, which I think will happen. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Uh, on the 17th of February, the case was transferred out of Davidson County to Forsyth Superior Court and trial was set to begin on June 26, 2023. Yeah, uh, that, I mean, that's a scene. I mean, am I wrong, Lisa? Like the change of venue to a neighboring county seems kind it just seems odd right like i can see if you're maybe transferring it to another part of the state but i mean it's basically in the same metro area is that well, just are they just doing that just to try to buy time i i think one of the one of the things is that the defense believes that transferring from davidson which is a working class somewhat rural county Got it. So it's a little bit more of maybe jury force. shopping. It's like the oh, let's let's try OJ downtown instead of where right. you live because you might get more favorable jurors. Well, well, no, and I'm going to correct you on OJ in a minute. Uh, Forsyth <laughs> is a more cosmopolitan is a more um, not cosmopolitan is is a more urban right yeah. middle class county right. The evidence. And the flaws in the self-defense claims, I don't think it really matters because that is why Martins and Corbett were initially convicted. And that is why I believe they will be convicted again, because the retrial is not going to change the forensic evidence, the observations of the witnesses uh, from first responders who came to the house that night. Um, the absence of injury on Martin's or Molly. I mean, you know, Martin's claims he was knocked to the floor on his back, but he didn't have a bruise. 
he claims he get engaged in a life and death struggle over a bat, but he doesn't have a bruise or a contusion. And he's fighting with a naked man. And he doesn't like when when Jason's got Molly, he doesn't, you know, poke him in a sensitive area with the, yeah, exactly. with the bat, which right. gives and and Martin's is a tall man with a long reach. Right. And Martin's has probably got a pretty good wingspan on him. So he takes that bat. And even if it is a little league bat for an eight year old, he's still he's far enough away, but he can he can get a good poke in that no, would probably absolutely. have taken Jason's mind off of anything. But um, well, yeah, I mean, and you know how it is. I mean, I mean, fortunately, I've never intentionally been hit with a bat. But, you know, even an older man swinging a bat at you full speed, that's going to make you light and, stop whatever you're doing. You know, and I'm even if it hits it, you in the back, I'm going to say it too. basic self-defense. Jason has Molly with his arm around her neck her back to him she reaches back she's got a handful of something exactly yeah right exactly and you know just when yeah, you have them by the balls their hearts and minds will follow exactly no exactly yes <laughs> a thousand things doesn't make sense i mean i mean there are so many ways that that it could have played out without beating jason to a pulp exactly i mean if even let's just i mean he could have just hit him square across the hiney and it would have hurt enough <laughs> yeah. that he would have stopped Lower back. I mean, that's yeah. the fleshy part of you know hit him there as hard as you can he's gonna stop doing whatever he's doing uh-huh yeah i know so uh on april 19 2023 the trial was continued to november 6 2023 i don't know the articles that I found didn't really elaborate and the court records are not yet online in Forsyth County. North Carolina is um, transitioning to online records system, but it hasn't made it to Davidson and Forsyth County. So I don't have access to the original trial records, but I'll keep looking and hopefully by the time the retrial starts, North Carolina will have rolled out the right now it's in like Wake County and uh, which is Raleigh, I think, and uh, a few other two or three other counties in in North Carolina. Hopefully, by the time the trial gets here, it will be in Forsyth and it, everything will be available or at least a docket with document names and dates will be available. Um, there are a couple of support sites I'd like to point listeners to if you're in interested in following the case uh, going down the line. There is Jason's Journey on Facebook and also on Twitter. Um, and on Facebook, that's www.facebook.com uh, backslash or slash justice for Jason Corbett, no spaces. And then there's keep molly and tom martin's behind bars and that's also on facebook it's um it's a profile with a number not a name so just try putting in keep molly and tom martin's behind bars um before i before i move to switch gears to move to oj um my brief thoughts on the retrial are my inference from the early media coverage of the retrial is that jack and sarah 
have attended several proceedings in the case, and each of them intends to be in attendance at the retrial. This will make them available to testify, which will lessen the impact of the statements they made in 2015 that Martins and Molly will again seek to introduce. Um, Martins and Molly may try to exclude Jack and Sarah from testifying on the grounds that their recantations of their August 2015 statements occurred after they were under the control and influence of Jason's family in Ireland, but that may backfire on them because the state will simply point out that they were in the control of the Martins family when they made the first statements. Uh, the fact that the August 25th statements came about because they were in custody of and under influence of the Martins family is obviously totally lost on um, probably Martins and Molly and their attorneys. Um, so I think that that will be, I, I think that they'll be convicted again. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. The forensic evidence and the absence of any injuries, that alone defeats self-defense or defense of others, even if you have those statements that there was domestic violence. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, juries are unpredictable, but yeah, it's just so and be very surprising. Yeah. And I I don't think a middle class, a more middle class jury is going to be sympathetic or more sympathetic to Molly and Martins than a um, a working class jury was. So I, I think that uh, the change of venue, the defense thinks it's going to be beneficial, but it's not. Yeah, my my only concern would be, I think, um, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, Wake Forest is in uh, is in Winston Salem, so you never know when you're going to get, you know, one of those, you know, nobody ever committed a crime, folks. Oh, that tend to yeah. be a little bit more attract, you know, in the university environments, you get a little more of those. You know, but this one is so blatant. That uh, yeah, I, I know I it's, it seems so. Yeah, it's, I, you would have to really suspend all disbelief, I think, mm -hmm. if you could. Yeah, could really think that. Um, now, I, I, I also, but I do feel very bad for Jack and Sarah. They're they're trying to uh, continue their educations. Uh, they're trying to live their lives, and this is very difficult. I think it's very it, difficult yeah. for the. Corbett Lynch's and the and the whole of the Corbett family. Yeah, of course. And I do have sympathy for them. Summer would have been better than November for a retrial. But I also admire Tracy Corbett Lynch, David Lynch, Jack Corbett Lynch, and Sarah Corbett Lynch, Marilyn Corbett. I don't think her name is Corbett now. She's married, but I don't remember her married name. And the uh, Wayne Corbett and the rest of the Corbett brothers. Um, I admire all of them for continuing to fight to see justice done for Jason. And I don't say that simply because I, I hope that they may listen to this program. Um, I really do admire it because, and I admire the Irish press which has really, uh, while trying to be fair and balanced, has at least um, championed Jason's cause by keeping his name 
and and keeping him as a human person in the in the public eye right and uh and again i am very impressed with their with their reporting and the depth of of their stories and the information that they provide so um that is it now to correct you on oj <laughs> um oj's venue was chosen by the da's office because they knew it would be high profile and the downtown courthouse was the only courthouse large enough to support the okay, high profile well, fair media enough, interest. I, I will retract my ignorant statement that they knew was going to come. <laughs> had they had they tried to hold it in the smaller venue where Brentwood was located, it would have been a shit show and a disaster. No, nah, touche. And I think that they would have had no choice but to have Judge Ito, who was an awful, 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 <laughs> horrible, awful, awful judge for this type of case. Because he was intimidated by the defense attorneys and he let them ride roughshod over him rather than him being in command of that courtroom and of that trial. Yeah. So. Yeah, and he was seduced by the celebrity in the camera. He was definitely seduced by the celebrity of it all, for sure. But he was afraid of Effley Bailey and Johnny Cochran and Robert Shapiro and Barry Sheck. And you saw it in every fucking ruling that dumbass man made. Because he always erred on the side of the defense. Even when he was totally, totally, when it was totally wrong. And there was no legal basis. And the worst part about that kind of error is that the prosecutors have no recourse when the defendant ends up being acquitted by a jury that, frankly, just didn't want to convict him anyway. So that just compounded the problem. So that's my take on O.J. Simpson. So, all right. Well, I think that's. I think that's, uh, do you have anything to add or any thoughts or anything? No, I mean, I think I shared most of it. I mean, I think I agree. It's just a tragic case. I mean, it's, you know, all of these are tragic, but this one in particular sort of jumps out at me, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, Jason just seemed like a really good man that was, you know, had already, had already suffered a terrible tragedy with the loss of his first wife and trying to do right by his children. And it just, again, all of these are tragic, but, you know, this one just, again, jumps out because I feel yeah. like he just got really trapped by, you know, a crazy black widow. And then and really just exacerbated by the fact that I still I, I, I honestly have a hard time processing that her father and retired FBI agent would participate in his murder as well or allegedly yeah. participate in his murder as well. Well, you know. That's another thing that I, I was very surprised because I, I, I sort of peripherally followed the case as it made its way through the, the system the first time in 20, between 2015 and 2017. I was really surprised that Molly has not come out and claimed sexual molestation and abuse a la Casey Anthony by yeah. her father and her brothers. Yeah. That really, really surprised me because I I don't 
think Molly has any problem throwing anybody under the bus and then backing it over him. Um, but again, the one thing about Jason that speaks volumes is when Molly wasn't happy in Ireland, he didn't tell her, well, to go back to the United States, then we'll get a right. divorce or go back to the United States. Then they weren't even married at the time. No, 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 no. He asked her to marry him. And then he moves to the United States with his two children to make her happy. Right. And in, in an abusive relationship, there is a brief honeymoon period, but then it turns to a nightmare and you can never get away from it. And that's another thing, too, is that Jason was giving Molly money. He wasn't making her financially dependent upon him at any time during this marriage. Was she financially dependent upon him? Right. Well, yeah, she tried to claim yeah. that it's not true. Well, I know I keep trying to rationalize irrational behavior, but I think that's what's that's kind of the thread that seems to me is, yeah. you know, he really went well above and beyond that anyone would ever expect a person to do for somebody else by, mm -hmm. you know, and then she just, you know, within, you know, a year was completely destructive. I mean, it wasn't like they had 10 really good years and over time it, it devolved. I mean, she yeah. did not... As they, soon as she yeah, got his hooks in him. They were married just over four years. And again, I think she realized the long game could, wasn't going to work because he was leaving her. Now, Tracy has said he had bags packed. But what was developed in the investigation per the probable cause affidavits was he was planning on heading to Ireland on August 21st. but. I think he I think he got really angry and he blurted it out to her. Yeah. And I think that that's what sealed his doom. And again, there's there's not strong enough evidence of premeditation to get first degree. Now, I didn't find any new indictments. But they're probably they've probably been reindicted. It's just that that information's not available yet. So, I'll I'll keep track of of that as we go along yeah not to, i know we're toward the end but that is an and that begs an interesting question of you know because you hear sometimes that prosecutors will overcharge with the hopes of the jury you know okay maybe i can't do first but i'll do second but that's probably a conversation for another day yeah um well in this one i think the the grand jury charge uh charged second degree involuntary manslaughter if they're reindicted that's probably what the yeah. what they went for that, that um, would make sense. So uh, unless they've gotten somebody who came forward and said, you know, I talked to Tom Martins while he was driving to North Carolina. He told me he was on his way to kill his son-in-law. Then we get first degree murder. <laughs> <laughs> but they would have to have that evidence. Um, so, all right, well, let's uh, let's wrap up. And. Um, have a the rest of our Sunday. Again, uh, take a moment when you listen to this. Uh, say a have a thought. Say a prayer for the family of Stacy Stites uh, because this is the anniversary of the date that she was killed by Rodney Reed. And so, um, you know, think of her family. It's been twenty seven years without her. Also, 
think about Jason Corbett and his family and his son and daughter, Jack and Sarah, and his sister and brothers and uh, all of his family who love him and miss him terribly. Thank you for listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast with Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans. If you like the show and want to know more, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Facebook, or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Join us in two weeks for episode six, Updates, Texas versus Reed and Oklahoma versus Glossop. We'll talk about the U.S. Supreme Court opinion that returned Rodney Reed's challenge to Texas DNA testing statute to lower federal courts and what it really means for Reed. With any luck, we'll have a decision by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals on Reed's 10th and 11th state writs as well. Then we'll talk about the result of the Oklahoma Attorney General's allegedly independent investigation, Glossop's 2023 state post-conviction application, the Attorney General's request to vacate Glossop's conviction, and the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals' decision denying post-conviction relief and the AG's request to vacate. Finally, we'll talk about Glossop's pending execution on May 18, 2023, and his still pending writ before the U.S. Supreme Court. Until then, have a great two weeks and stay safe. Thank you.